Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Acts chapter 14, the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are some black Bibles around the worship center. You can even get up now and grab one of those if you'd like and get to Acts chapter 14. In the mid-1800s, Charles Dickens penned that classic, um, A Tale of Two Cities. It's a novel about London and Paris during the French Revolution. And so you've got real cities, a real war, but a made-up story. I've never read A Tale of Two Cities. It's not real. It's not relevant to me. I don't love Dickens. But I have read Acts chapter 14, and I love that. Acts 14 couldn't be more real. It's really a tale of three cities, but not just a tale. These are real historical figures, real events in real ancient cities. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Most of us can't find those on a map. Many of us can't even spell those three cities. You might be wondering why anyone would really care about what happened almost 2,000 years ago in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. But it has much relevance for us today. It's instructive. The book of Acts is history that teaches, we've been saying, and one of the ways it teaches is through repetition. You have different scenes in different cities, but the themes keep repeating. And eight months into our study of the book of Acts together, over 14 chapters now, we've seen many themes be repeated. They're, they're growing in their clarity, and there's usefulness in the repetition. There's the theme of the spread of the gospel among the nations. There's also the, the theme of the inevitability of opposition and the surety of success. Some people refuse and resist the gospel when it's proclaimed. Some will even violently oppose this Jesus movement. And some happily embrace it. They receive his mercy and begin to be changed by it. And those who embrace the mercy that comes from Jesus... Well, they, in one locale, they form a, a community. We call it a church. We've been seeing those churches, despite great opposition, they speak boldly for Jesus. They send some of their own out to other places where Christ is not yet known. In all of this, the opposition and the success of the gospel breeds more boldness. Cities change, but the song remains the same. The repetition of the book of Acts doesn't make it less relevant, or in my opinion, less interesting, but helps us understand more clearly what the church should be about and what the church can expect. So let's read it, Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. 
So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, though, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We'll stop there for this week. It's a tale of three cities plus a trip back over those previous cities where a church has been planted in order to disciple them further and strengthen these Christians some more. So first, it's Iconium, a city divided. Iconium is a city divided. Last week, Tom left us off in chapter 13 with Paul and Barnabas. You see verse 49 of chapter 13. They're spreading the word of the Lord throughout the region. And so there's gospel success and gospel opposition. And so in verse 51, they moved on to Iconium, our first of three cities in chapter 14. In Iconium, they did as they did back in chapter 13 in the city of Antioch. They went first to the Jewish synagogue. 
They did this for a theological reason. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, I think. But also for a practical reason, that it's, it's rather low-hanging fruit to go to these people who, when they get together, the Bible is read. And in this environment, someone is going to have to get up and give some sort of talk, an explanation, or an encouragement. We saw Paul do that in the middle of chapter 13. There's a sermon to a synagogue there. And of course, we saw Paul's method of taking the Old Testament and getting to Jesus. Taking the Old Testament and showing that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Christ. And so in chapter 14, he does the same. In verse 1, they were there speaking in such a way that Jews and Greeks believed. That is, they believed in Jesus. They became Christians. They, they embraced the Christ message of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Now, today, for us, going to a Jewish synagogue to talk about Jesus is probably not low-hanging fruit. It may not be very productive. But we should ask what low-hanging fruit there is in our lives. Low-hanging fruit for the gospel. Where and in what ways can you get to Jesus most easily, most quickly, most naturally with someone? Maybe giving them a book? It's a present. You paid for it. They have to read it on their own time. You didn't impose. Maybe telling someone that you'll pray for them or asking them how you can pray for them. Maybe asking someone if they'd like to start reading the Bible with you. It might not seem like low-hanging fruit to you, but you might be surprised how easy it is to begin in the Gospel of Mark with a, a non-Christian, read a chapter together, talk about it, answer whatever questions they might have, if you can, if you can't, that's all right, and see if you can start working towards who is this Jesus. It's low-hanging fruit. You'd be surprised how many people say yes to that simple question, would you like to read the Bible with me? Maybe inviting someone to church would be low-hanging fruit. You get this experience of someone talking about Jesus for a good length of time, and surely it's worth talking about with them personally afterward. That's low-hanging fruit, even in our culture. Now, no one is saved simply by going to church. No one is simply saved because you prayed for them or asked how you can pray for them. But it's a start, it has to get to Jesus. They have to see Jesus or believe on Jesus in order to be saved. Yes and amen. But the gospel encounter can begin in a number of places. And why not start with low-hanging fruit? Because even Paul, the apostle, did. And some believed. In fact, a great number believed. But not all. Sticking with the motif here in Acts, the gospel's presented, some believe, some don't. And so the city was divided according to verse 4. It's a city divided. Some are with unbelieving Jews, some are with the apostles in this Jesus movement. Verse 2, some in the city who were against the Jesus movement 
stirred up others in the city by poisoning their minds against these Jesus followers. The gospel divides. This is what the gospel does. It's the very nature of the gospel. It's it's like a sword. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide houses, sons against fathers and mothers against daughters. When the gospel is spoken, some believe and some refuse. And there is a dividing. Yes, it's a word of grace, as it says in verse 3. But that word of grace is a word of grace for sinners. It's grace to forgive sin and rebellion. And that's offensive to modern sensibilities, isn't it? That used to be offensive to us before we were Christians. The gospel is light, and at first you want to flee the light. Only do we realize by God's grace that in the light there is healing. Proud people, righteous people, quote-unquote righteous people, don't think they need forgiveness, or at least not much of it. If God can give them a leg up, if God can give them a welcome mat in, sure, that's fine. Don't talk down to me, though. Don't, Don't describe my situation as that dire. I'm not as bad as others. But by God's grace... That message that was once a stench to our nose can become music to our ears. The gospel divides. The gospel is a sword. We've seen it on every page in the book of Acts. Jesus, just by nature of who he is and and what he claims to be and what he claims is the problem and what he offers, he, he stirs up. He stirs up some, and he's a cuss word to them. And he is the lily of the valley and the king of kings and lord of lords to others. But he stirs up. I suppose some today think that they can be indifferent to Jesus. That if you're neutral with Jesus, he'll be neutral with you. If you let him lie, then he'll let you lie like a lying dog. But no, 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 there's no neutrality with Jesus. He said, you're, you're, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you think you're just indifferent to Jesus, and that's okay, well, you should know that Jesus isn't indifferent to you. And that's a problem. Jesus is more offensive than many people think. And he is more gracious and glorious than most people think. So the gospel divides. We shouldn't be surprised when people believe this thing. In fact, we should in some ways be shocked that they don't. Are you kidding? We have an explanation for why they don't. We used to be there ourselves. We understand the experience. But now that we see, we can't unsee. We should be shocked that people don't. We shouldn't be surprised when they believe. We shouldn't be surprised either when they don't believe. And we shouldn't be surprised even when they they get violently angry. But no matter how severe, 
or painful or, or personal the opposition gets, we can't get shy. It's a loving thing to extend Jesus verbally to those who will get mad at it at first. Maybe not for good, because it's what they need. The very message that riles people up is the message that redeems. You can't have one without the other. This is the catch-22 of the gospel. If we present to the world a Jesus in a message that doesn't offend, then that message and that Jesus doesn't save. If we hold back what offends, no one gets saved. All over the country this morning, there are church buildings holding services and so-called sermons are being preached filled with a message that can't save, discussing a problem that is not the root problem. There are churches all over this country this morning that are talking about how you can be a better you and how you can overcome adversity and how the movies show little fingerprints of God. There are churches that are teaching this morning that we need something less than the bloodied, crucified Savior to have our sins forgiven. That should be heartbreaking to us. The catch-22 of the gospel shouldn't lead us to frozen fear in order to save face with the world, but, but actually to greater boldness and clarity. Notice that transition that takes place from verse 2 to verse 3. In verse 2, unbelievers are stirring up the city against the Christians. Verse 3, so Paul and Barnabas remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. That doesn't seem to make logical sense to me, right? Christians are maligned in this city. Opposition's growing. So you leave, right? So they remained there a long time. Well, okay, but you remain there but keep quiet, right? No, they remained there and kept speaking boldly. And what they spoke was substantiated by God with the miraculous. According to verse 3, signs and wonders were bearing witness to the word of his grace. We've seen this in Acts before, where the miraculous substantiates or bears witness to uh, the spoken word. The word is spoken, a miracle happens, and then it's the word on the center of the stage again as that miracle is explained, as the one behind the miracle, Jesus, is explained. I stress this point because we don't always know when God will miraculously substantiate the spoken word of the gospel with healings or, or the like. He, he may and we should pray that he, he, will, he will. But we should also remember that there are many other ways that Jesus talks about substantiating the gospel that we speak. We're to be lights in this dark world. We're to love each other in the church fervently and stand out in that way. Philippians 2 says you're going to stand out like a bright light in this world if you just don't complain. That stands out in this complaining world. 
And that's one of the ways the gospel is substantiated. But also know and keep firmly in mind that some just will not believe. No matter how, how little you complain or how great a miracle is, they just won't believe. Jesus said in Luke 16, you people wouldn't believe even if the dead are raised. And they didn't. And that was the case in Iconium. The opposition turned from lies to murderous plot. Verse 5, Jews and Gentiles with their local rulers began plotting against the Christians to mistreat and to stone them. To kill them painfully. And so at this point, Paul and Barnabas and maybe other Christians in the city, they move on down the road to another city, taking the gospel where Christ has not yet been known. This raises the question, we've seen it before in Acts, we've asked it and answered it before in our study together. When is it appropriate for a Christian to stay in a persecuted location? And when is it appropriate for a Christian to flee a persecuted situation? And the answer is not easy. But we can say this, Paul and Barnabas stayed in this city when there were spoken threats and Christians being maligned for the sake of the gospel. And when the threat of being killed grew larger, they fled for the sake of the gospel. We shouldn't presume that they chickened out, that they folded under pressure, that, that they left because of personal comforts or a fear of death. It seems like they stayed in circumstance, certain circumstances for the gospel, and then they left at times for the gospel. So, Iconium. There, the gospel is proclaimed. Some believe, some reject it. Some even begin to violently oppose it. But Christians are resilient. Mark Dever says, Christians are like cockroaches. You can step on us all you want, but you can't wipe us out. Christians are resilient. And the gospel moves on down the road where Jesus is not yet known. To the city of Lystra, the second city. Lystra, a city confused. The story of Lystra here begins with a miracle. A man born crippled is, is healed miraculously by, by Paul. And the scene has many similarities with another healing that takes place back in Acts chapter 3, where there Peter healed a man who was also crippled. There are several similarities between these two healings. Both were crippled from birth. Both were sitting and listening to someone preach the gospel. Both Peter and Paul made eye contact with the man they were about to heal and could sense his faith somehow. And once they spoke healing into these men's lives, the men got up and both leapt. They leapt. So those similarities between Acts 3 and Acts 14 are certainly purposeful. The purpose is to emphasize Paul's importance, his significance. He's not second fiddle to Peter. As important as Peter was for the first half of Acts, so Paul is 
for the second, sorry, for the first half of Acts, Paul is for the second half of Acts. The very same Jesus-like healings are done by Peter and also done by Paul. This is really special stuff we're seeing. These, these healings in the book of Acts are, are often out of this world. I believe God can heal today. I believe we should pray for healing today. But let's not pretend that healings like in Acts 3 and Acts 14 aren't spectacular and unusual. Paul could somehow observe this man's faith. Not his face, his faith. That's a Jesus-like thing, and that's not a gift that I have. I don't think you have it either. You can sense interest, curiosity, concern with facial expressions, but Paul could somehow see this man's faith. And Paul didn't even need to pray for the healing to happen. He simply spoke it. He commanded the man to stand up, and it happened, just as he said it would. That's spectacular. If you and I try to imitate Paul here exactly, we are probably going to put God to the test, number one, and two, we're probably going to uh, humiliate and make a cruel mockery of some handicapped or sick person. Don't imitate Paul exactly here, even while you pray for God to heal and show his power in various ways. These Lystran townspeople, they recognize the supernatural when they see it. They've known this crippled man probably his whole life. He probably is carried to the same spot in the city every day where there he receives alms. And that's how he has a living. That's how he gets by and and eats food. They knew about the man. They knew about his disease. And they also saw a man they didn't know come in and yell, Get up! And he leapt. That's no magic trick. That's no TV preacher charlatan who's got someone stage up front who's going to pretend like they got a sore back and then fall down and get up and, that's a little bit better. No, this is a miracle. They know it. And yet it leads to a case of mistaken identity, doesn't it? They think Paul and Barnabas are the embodiment of Zeus and Hermes, Greek gods in human form. That's their only explanation for what they observed. And there's some background to this story that's not in the Bible that you might find helpful. A guy named Ovid, O-V-I-D, in the year 8, as in 8 A.D., he wrote a book of mythological stories. And one was about Zeus and Hermes visiting a valley near Lystra, our second city. And as the story goes, Zeus and Hermes visited this town cloaked as humans to test them to see if they would be hospitable. And a thousand times they visited the city with no hospitality until one old peasant family showed them hospitality. Then everything clicked. Zeus and Hermes moved their house up to a mountain to live with Zeus and Hermes, and a flood came on the rest of the valley and killed them all. 
So surely 40 years after it was written, the people of Lystra knew about that myth, that story. They may not have seen it actually as a myth, but as something real. And they don't want that to happen again. They've seen something grand, miraculous, powerful. They put two and two together. This must be that. Zeus and Hermes in the flesh. Let's be nice to them. And so before too long, there's a priest getting out the instruments and the animals for sacrifices because these are gods, and they are ready to worship. Now hit pause here. What would you do if you were Paul and Barnabas in this situation? What do you do next? How do you reason this out? Might you be tempted to roll your eyes, but then go along with it? Might you think, well, this really isn't the time to address this. We really should get to Jesus first, and then maybe discipleship will cover this some other time. We'll do a class on Roman gods a couple months from now, and we'll address how you probably shouldn't have done that thing back then when you first met us and thought we were Zeus and Hermes. Or maybe you'd even be tempted to just enjoy it for the moment. A day as a god? Well, I know that's not right, but it will be fun. A parade in our honor? Sacrifices for us? Yeah, Zeus, Hermes. Do you remember Herod in chapter 12? When people clamored, he has the voice of a god! Oh, he soaked it up. He loved it. And God struck him dead. Because he didn't give glory to God. Well, Paul and Barnabas aren't like Herod. They won't make that mistake. They're neither tempted to play God for a day, nor do they reason that these new adoring fans are just harmlessly misguided. This is big stuff. This is blasphemy. This is calling God what is not God. And so they put a stop to it post-haste. They tear their clothes in protest of blasphemy. They run into the crowd before any fires get lit. And they explain then to the crowd who Paul and Barnabas are, who these, these Lystrans are, and who the true God is. So who are Paul and Barnabas? They're just men. They're like them. The Lystrans, and like us, we are of like nature with you. Yes, Paul was a conduit for God's power to heal a man, but Paul doesn't have that power in himself. He's a man. He's a sinner. He is a used sinner, used by God in mighty ways. Yes, he's a man full of faith indeed, but he's a man. There is God and then man, or human beings. Theologians talk about the distance as transcendence. God is transcendent. The gap between us down here and him up there is infinite. It's not like Ryan's 5'8", Shaq is 7'2", but God is really big. I mean, we're, we're using the wrong categories if we're extrapolating from my height to Shaq's height and then to God. No, we're just men. God is God, and there's only one. Hermes and Zeus are not gods. 
Paul says that they represent the true God and they come from that true God with a message of good news. We bring you good news, verse 15. And part of the good news is that Zeus and Hermes aren't God and that there's only one God to deal with. Part of the good news is that though you have turned to these false gods your whole life, you can turn from them now and turn to the living God. That is is an invitation of grace. Yes, it confronts. You have these worthless gods. These gods that are just part of the imagination of men. And all these gods in the Roman pantheon There are no gods at all. They're myths. They're empty. They're vanity. They must be turned from, but they can be turned from. God must be turned to, but God can be turned to. Implied is an invitation. They explain that God had for many generations before let them be on their own. He had left them to themselves. It's not that they didn't sin. It's not that they're not guilty. It's not that there isn't trouble with the creator God. No, no, no. All that is true. But he had left them to themselves, like Romans 1 talks about. Proof was their empty Roman religion. He had left them to themselves, but he wasn't absent. And he wasn't silent. He was speaking all along. In creation, verse 17, he didn't leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. We call this providence, that God's sovereign plan orchestrates to provide for his creation in plush and glorious ways. His his joy... And his kindness is over all his creation. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. That should should blow our minds. We as Christians should, should be baffled by the fact that green chili tastes the same for everyone. Those on their way to hell and shaking a fist at God in the process and those on their way to heaven who pray and give thanks to him as if they couldn't even earn their own green chili. That's amazing that, that God is that kind. He's been so gracious. Now we don't know if Paul got to the gospel with these people. We're just told in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from making sacrifices to them. Perhaps Paul did get to the gospel and Luke didn't include it. Or perhaps Paul intended to get to the gospel and maybe later on did. But here his primary concern was just making sure the fire gets put out, the animals get put back, and you stop saying Zeus and Hermes about us. We know that Paul did get to the gospel because by verse 20, there are believers in this city. The most important point, though, about this little sermon, whether it's an introduction that Luke records or the whole sermon that gets interrupted because of this focus on wanting to make sacrifice, we don't know. But, but the most important point here is that this is a very different model of preaching than what we saw in the last chapter when Paul preached there. 
In the last chapter, Paul preached to Jews, and he began with Bible. Bible story, Bible story, Bible story. Jesus, he's the fulfillment of all this. When he preaches to pagan Gentiles who don't know those Old Testament stories, he doesn't bother with them. He begins with one God, not many. The creator God, the creator of all. And the goodness of God. He's been so kind to you. And that means then that your idols, your false gods, they're not only empty, they're wrong. You've replaced the true God, but you can turn from these gods, these so-called gods, and you can turn to the living God. This is good news indeed. By the way, you might want to sock this away for your evangelism tool belt. God's common grace. That God has been gracious to your unbelieving neighbor these 30 or 40 or 50 years. Marvel at how kind he's been, how good he is. You can't stay there. It's got to get to Jesus. But boy, that's a, that's a nice thing we can say. It's got to cover bad news eventually. We can't not talk about the bad news of sin, rebellion, trouble, and judgment that's to come. But isn't it great? Here's Paul. And he just looks around and he says, what about the rain? What about the food? What about the stuff that you love to eat? And, and how good he's been. But it didn't get him very far. They just barely blew out the fire and put the animals away. They don't believe in Jesus. In fact, this is really a fickle bunch because in verse 19... Now by there, the Jews back in Iconium, where they, wanting, where they were wanting to stone Paul and Barnabas, they now have traveled down to Lystra, and they have stirred up the people of Lystra, the same ones who were quick to want to honor Paul and Barnabas as miracle-working gods and make sacrifices to them. They quickly get persuaded to kill one of them. And they do, almost. <laughs> they stone Paul. Just picture that. I mean, we don't see that in movies, let alone in real life. But imagine a handful, I mean, a, a rock that's the size of your hand. and You throw it at a man's head. And then another, and then another, and then another. And in this crowd keeps going with their stones until a man is in a bloodied heap, motionless in the dirt. Uh, imagine what that would feel like. Imagine being Barnabas. Paul, he's probably younger than Barnabas, but he's the clear leader. We've been through so much together, years of missionary travel and prayers and tears. Here's Paul. Imagine being one of these new converts. Verse 20, they gathered about Paul. So these new believers, they, they maybe only days ago had heard the message and embraced it. And now the one who told you the message is, is apparently dead and bloodied under all these stones. What? What did I get myself into? Hmm. 
And then they drag him out. Not the disciples, the people who stoned him. They dragged him out of the city. So his body would be picked at and eaten by birds and worms. And Barnabas and the new disciples gather around Paul. Perhaps they pray for him. Surely they mourn for him. And then he moves. He's not dead. He was mostly dead, but he's not dead. I mean, if ever there was a mostly dead category, this is it. I'm sure it took a while to get up. What do you do next? Go back into the city? The same city where they just stoned you? Yeah, that's what he does. We don't know why. Maybe the you know, next closest city wasn't viable for Paul who was so injured. But he risks life and limb to go back in. He goes back in. Well, what do you do after that? Travel? How long is that going to take? How long does it take for Paul to recoup? Well, the next day, they head out on a 60-mile journey to the next town. The gospel's got to move on. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how a man who was nearly dead from stones begins a journey the next day. By the way, if you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic, what do you do with this guy, Paul? How do you explain him? You might have questions about, you know, possible inconsistencies in these numbers that are mentioned in the Bible or something. I would love to answer any questions you might have, if I can, about questions or concerns or possible inconsistencies you think are in the Bible. But I ask you this. How do you explain a guy of whom non-Christian historians top to bottom all agree was once the lead opposition against Christianity, then became its chief spokesman, and that guy's only explanation is that he met the risen Christ in person before his very eyes, and that changes everything. Now, secular historians wouldn't believe that, you know, Jesus was actually raised from the dead, but they do believe that Paul believed it and that that was the reason for Paul to change sides. Not like he got traded to another NFL team. He went from killing Christians to being willing to be killed as a Christian. How do you explain that? Either that dude is insane or he's got some sort of, you know, pain, pro- like he's just looking for suffering and trouble. He's a, he's a really messed up dude. Or he met the resurrected Jesus, and that changes everything. Well, we come to a third city then. Paul and his companions still aching, no doubt, still wiping tears away. They move on to Derby the next morning. Thirdly, there's Derby, a city converted. And this one goes real fast. Verse 21, here's the summary of what happened in Derby. The gospel was preached in that city, and many there became disciples. More may have happened. There may have been suffering and opposition that, that Luke doesn't record. 
Here's the main highlight in Derby: the gospel spread, and now there, there are many disciples. But we're not done. Their story, in fact, Derby, as well as other cities, it's not done. Fourthly, there's a doubling back for discipleship. Verse 21 in the middle, they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why? They are there to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Disciples is the word most used in Acts for Christians. Disciples, followers of Christ. We sometimes talk about discipleship. What is that? Well, it's the ongoing project of following Jesus together and hopefully increasingly so. Better all the time. That's part of the project of discipleship. And we need strengthening for that. We need working out. We, we need muscles that grow in minds that expand and reminders in our ears. In Acts 2, remember the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching. Strengthening is what's needed. Ephesians 4 tells us that God gives teachers to churches so that there is equipping so that the rest of the body works on ministering to the body so the body grows together. It needs strengthening. What's the strengthening for? Well, perseverance. Perseverance is needed. You see that in verse 22? Paul and Barnabas were encouraging these churches to continue in the faith. We saw that last week in chapter 13. Some become new Christians and Paul's primary message of discipleship to them is keep on, continue in grace. Now Christians can't lose God's grace if they're truly Christ's. But all true Christians keep at it. That's a biblical principle. So here's the recommendation to you, Christian. Keep at it. Christians will keep at it. Not perfectly so, but genuinely so. So keep at it. There are some who forsake their profession of Christ. They turn aside from it and prove that they never really had it. Don't be one of those. Keep on with it. Perseverance is needed. We continue in the faith. We need to continue in God's grace. Hebrews 10 tells us how we do this. It says together we draw near to God. We keep confessing Christ together without wavering. We try to figure out ways to stir up love and good works with each other. Not forsaking meeting together but encouraging each other all the more. Perseverance is needed. Suffering should be expected. Paul and Barnabas were teaching these churches that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The most recent tribulation is Paul's stoning. I'm sure he mentioned that. I'm sure he'd have to mention that based on his appearance. But here he says... There are many tribulations that Christians will have to endure. And what he means is many kinds. Not every Christian will be stoned like Paul or shipwrecked like Paul or martyred like the apostles. But it is generally true that it is through tribulations that Christians get to heaven. 
It doesn't mean that we earn our way in because we suffer so hard before. No, no, no. The way to heaven is free, but that free path is, is just charted with trials. It's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, it's the Calvary road, right? We're supposed to take up our cross and follow a Savior who was crucified. So there are persecutions and trials and tribulations and difficulties of many kinds on this way into the kingdom of God. You must enter by way of difficulty. But you can. You can enter the kingdom of God. This is the way. And then he says leaders must be appointed. Luke teaches us that when they had, verse 23, appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Elders are leaders in the church. They are also known as pastors in the Bible. Another word for them is overseers, according to Acts 20. These words are used interchangeably for the primary leadership of the church. They're pastors, they're elders, they're overseers. Another word is that they're shepherds, and so they shepherd. They lead, they feed, they protect. That's what an elder does. Elders are always plural in the New Testament. Whenever a group of elders is mentioned at a church, it's never the elder, it's the elders, plural, as it is here. And these are elders appointed in every church, which I take to mean that every local church is its own entity with its own leadership and that there isn't this superstructure of elders above local churches, but Paul and Barnabas put Put elders in each local church. Even John Stott, who was an Anglican all his life, when he came to this passage, he couldn't deny just what it said, even though his church tradition as an Anglican didn't quite do this. But he said of this passage, this arrangement was both local and plural. Local in that the elders were chosen from within the congregation, not imposed from without. And plural in that the familiar modern pattern of one pastor, one church is simply unknown. Instead, there was a pastoral team, which is likely to have included, depending on the size of the church, full-time, part-time, and voluntary ministers. Well, there, John Stott nailed it. He should have applied it a little bit better at his church, but here it's inescapable, I think. Let me end this in an unspectacular sort of way with review. Let's review some things. The gospel inevitably divides, but this can't dissuade us or discourage us from speaking it boldly and clearly. The gospel inevitably divides. It is a sword. Embrace the swordness of the gospel. Let it do its work. It, it's not us, up to us to decide which way that sword cuts or heals. The gospel exposes and confronts idolatry. We see that in this passage. But it also welcomes any who wish to turn from their fake gods, 
hopeless idols, these worthless things, and turn to the gracious living God. We do that only through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, where he died for sinners and offers his righteousness received only through faith, if we would just call out to to him for it. If we simply believe that he can take care of our sin and make us accounted righteous before God and accepted before him. The gospel exposes and confronts idolatry, which is a problem not just for ancient Roman cultures with their pantheon of idols, but any satisfaction, any allegiance or love or trust that you have that, that apes God, that is God-like, Yeah, that's idolatry too. A problem we all have. But God's grace is greater than our sin. The gospel changes us, doesn't it? Just look at Paul. Not every Christian will be that kind of sinner before they're a Christian or or that kind of saint as Paul was once they're a Christian. But, But the gospel does transform. It does its work. God's grace is not just forgiveness, but also transformation and growth and and adoption and reconciliation. Praise God for it. The gospel puts us together. Yes, it divides the world, but it unites the church. He puts us together in churches for this mutual discipleship project of following Jesus more closely and more happily together. We need each other. We need leaders. We need strengthening. We need reminders. We need pleas that just simply say, keep on believing. Keep on with Jesus. He won't let you down. And the gospel unites us to God. It not only unites us to each other, not only gets us out of God's judgment, it unites us to God. These saints and elders referred to in verse 23 had been committed to the Lord in whom they had believed. It seems like a statement you almost don't need to say, committed to the Lord. Well, of course the Lord has them. But, yeah, but, but it's a beautiful statement. The apostles committed these people to the Lord, to recognize they're in the Lord's hands. He has them. He will lead them. He will keep them. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that last day. Let's pray for God's help until that last day comes. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death for our sin. We thank you for your promises and gifts. Thank you for your kindness in uniting us together in the church. Lord, this church is far from perfect, but it is a small reflection of what you're doing in this world and the grace that you give and the forgiveness that you offer and the forgiveness you call us to with each other. We thank you, Lord, for the church, for the gospel, For all those who are with us this morning, we pray for faith, we pray for joy, we pray for endurance and boldness no matter what trials face us on our way into the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.